Imagine yourself in the most important court scene in the history of the world. And not only the most important court, but the most important supreme judge. And in this case, the judge is not only the presiding sovereign in the courtroom, but he is also the sovereign of the universe. Here in Psalm 50 are both the opening statements of this sovereign judge within the cosmic courtroom, but also two major felony indictments which are being brought against the covenant people of God. Therefore, listen to Psalm 50, a psalm of Asaph. This Asaph, by the way, may have been the head of a Levitical choir, according to 1 Chronicles 25, the mighty one, God the Lord, speaks and summons the earth from the rising of the sun to its setting. Out of Zion, the perfection of beauty, God shines forth. Our God comes. He does not keep silence. Before him is a devouring fire, around him a mighty tempest. He calls to the heavens above and to the earth that he may judge his people. Gather to me my faithful ones who made a covenant with me by sacrifice. The heavens declare his righteousness for God himself is judge. Selah. Hear, O people, and I will speak. O Israel, I will testify against you. I am God, your God. Not for your sacrifices do I rebuke you. Your burnt offerings are continually before me. I will not accept a bull from your house or goats from your folds. For every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. I know all the birds of the hills, and all that moves in the field is mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the world and its fullness are mine. Do I eat the flesh of bulls or drink the blood of goats? Offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving and perform your vows to the Most High and call upon me in the day of trouble. I will deliver you. And you shall glorify me. But to the wicked, God says, What right have you to recite my statutes or take my covenant on your lips? For you hate discipline, and you cast my words behind you. If you see a thief, you are pleased with him, and you keep company with adulterers. You give your mouth free rein for evil and your tongue frames deceit. You sit and speak against your brother. You slander your own mother's son. These things you have done, and I've been silent. You thought that I was one like yourself. But now I rebuke you and lay the charge before you. Mark this, then, you who forget God, lest I tear you apart and there be none to deliver. The one who offers 
thanksgiving as his sacrifice glorifies me. To one who orders his way rightly, I will show the salvation of God. Now that's a heavy psalm. And four outline points mark the sections of this psalm tonight. And the first one is this. The first one is this. God takes His covenant people to the Supreme Court. God takes His covenant people to the Supreme Court. Look again at verses 1 to 6. Verses 1 to 6. Go back to what I read about this psalm in verses 1 to 6, and particularly what I said a moment ago about this being God's supreme court. Verses 1 to 6 really give us what I would call a biography of whose court it is. And if you see the very first verse, here's what we find. Here's a biography. Here's a description. Here are three names of God. It looks like just two, the mighty one, God the Lord, but it's really three, the mighty one, God, and maybe a comma after that, and then the phrase, the Lord. So three different names for God here. It's as though God himself, through Asaph, the psalmist, is heaping up some of the names for himself so that you and I see the absolute poignant point of the moment. This is the Supreme Court. This is the judge. These are his names. Here's how he is represented. And the first one is this, God. That's the word El in Hebrew. And that does mean the mighty one. Or perhaps it could be translated the transcendent one. The transcendent one. The mighty one in the ESV. That's an august title. And then secondly... God, God, the mighty one, and then secondly, God, that's Elohim. That's why I said perhaps there's a comma here after it, because it's the second name listed in verse 1, and it could be understood as something like this, the creator God. Elohim, the creator God, I created all this. I'm the mighty one. I'm the transcendent one. I'm the mighty God. Do you see what's happening? God is giving, as the judge, a description, a biography of himself. This is whom you are standing before. And then thirdly, the Lord. That's that covenant name. That's that personal name of God, Yahweh. Yahweh, the personal name of of God, which could be legitimately translated with something like this, Covenant Lord. Do you see how all of those letters are capitalized, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D? This is, this is when the, the English text of our Bible is translating the tetragrammaton. This is the four-consonant stipulation or designation of the covenant name of God, Y-H-W. H. And this is Yahweh God. I am the self-existent one. And so this psalm starts out with a mighty punch. This is God describing himself. He's announcing with absolute power and authority that he is the presiding judge of all the earth. 
And with his divine gavel, he sits down on the Supreme Court bench and he begins to speak. Look at the latter part of verse 1. He speaks. He summons. And who does he summon? The earth, the whole earth, from the rising of the sun to its setting. That means from the east to the west. He's telling everyone, sit down, I've got something to say. And this judge is speaking from the bench, and according to verse 2, he's speaking from the bench out of Zion, the perfection of beauty. Out of Zion. Uh, This is Jerusalem. This is the sanctuary of God. That's where the supreme court of the earth is located. This is where God is, in a sense, coming from heaven to the earth, sitting in the sanctuary of the people of God, and he places himself as judge on the bench in Jerusalem, and he says, I am ready to speak. And then notice at the end of verse 2, it says, God shines forth. Maybe that's something like this. God's illuminating gaze is upon His people and all of their hearts. Because remember, as the supreme judge of the universe and as the one who is absolutely omniscient, He has these these illuminating, shining eyes and He searches with that searchlight of those eyes into the very recesses of the deepest part of the heart of man. He knows everything we're thinking. He knows everything we're doing. He knows everything we're saying. And it says here, God speaks and summons the whole earth. Perhaps His shining means that He will uncover sins by His people with the searchlight of truth upon them. Verse 3, our God comes. He does not keep silence. And then to add to the idea of the searchlight of his gaze, the idea of God shines forth at the end of verse 2. In verse 3 it says, Before him is a devouring fire, around him a mighty tempest. This is fire and storm. This is, this is like Hebrews 12, 29, where it says, Our God is a consuming fire. This is a, a kind of anthropomorphism. This is, this is God's accommodation to our understanding when we see the ferocity of fire. When we see the tempest, a storm, and we're afraid. This is God setting up things to show us that I am about to put the searchlight of my gaze upon the inner recesses of your heart, and I'm also with my fire and with my storm, I'm coming to judge. I'm coming to cast my examination upon you. And do you remember some of the instances in which God has done this? even before. Look in your Bibles at Exodus chapter 19. Exodus chapter 19. Of course, you are all familiar, I'm sure, with the idea of the golden calf, but in Exodus chapter 19, and of course, 
in Exodus 20 with the giving of the law, uh, there are some things going on in the earth as God is on the mountain in this case. And in Exodus chapter 19, notice this same idea of fire and storms or tempest. Exodus 19, beginning in verse 16, it says here, On the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast so that all the people in the camp trembled. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God, and they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Now, Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kill, and the whole mountain trembled greatly. And as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God answered him in thunder. The Lord came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain, and the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain, and Moses went up. I would have been scared out of my wits. This is, this is God coming to meet His people, and He's not like us. This is how the supreme court of the universe and the chief justice is coming to speak to His people. He's got something to say. He's speaking to the world, and He's telling the world, you better hear and heed. Verse 4. He calls to the heavens above and to the earth that he may judge his people. In other words, you might have seen this before in the Bible, I call heaven and earth before you this day. He's calling them as witnesses. The heavens will tell you by witnessing what I'm saying. The earth will tell you what I'm saying by their witness. And here's what he says. This is how he speaks. Gather to me my faithful ones. Now stop there. You and I might think for a moment, here is going to come commendation. Because he says, come to me, my faithful ones. That could actually also be tr- uh, translated beloved. Beloved. This is actually a-, a word that's in the family of words about those people who have sacrificed to their God, who have covenanted with their God. Here are the saints of God. Here are the people of God. Well, God is going to come down and He's going to commend them for all their good deeds. And what do the heavens and the earth declare? The heavens declare His righteousness, for God Himself is judge. And this is now the time for God, the righteous judge, to render His judgment upon His covenant people. And you see that musical term, Selah, which ends this particular section? It challenges us, I think, undoubtedly to pause and to think about this righteous God of ours 
and the believing people of God. He is the mighty one. He's the transcendent one. He is Yahweh. He is coming in the midst of fire and storm, and he has his gaze upon us. He's the one who comes with a piercing judgment in brilliant light shining forth into our actions, and with the fire of testing on our motives, and with the tempest of examination of our worship, and this God will now render his verdict upon us. So that's the first outline point. Here's the second. God brings to them the indictment, we'll call it, of religious externalism. You might write that in your Bible for verses 7 to 15. God brings to them the indictment, the felony indictment. Here's the first one. Let's call it religious externalism. The God of His people thunderously speaks to them that they're they're doing the right things, that is, the right actions in sacrificing their animals to Him in His presence, but they were actually performing their religious duty, their worship, with the wrong motives. Look at verse 7. Hear my people, oh my people, and I will speak. This is that summons that he brings to them. O Israel, I will testify against you. See, it's not a commendation, it's a condemnation. I will testify against you. Remember, he's omniscient, he's omnipresent, he knows, he sees in their hearts, he's powerful, and he knows what's going on in their heart of hearts, and he says this, I am God, your God. Verse 8, not for your sacrifices do I rebuke you. Your burnt offerings are continually before me. In other words, I see them. I see what you're doing in your worship. And you know, because of all of the Mosaic legislation, they were called very specifically to bring very specific sacrifices at very specific times, right? In fact, this may even be a psalm that might have been sung every seven years at least because every seven years there was to be a covenant renewal for the people of God. And so this might be a psalm that is sung every seven years at least for the indictment to come for anybody who is worshiping God through their sacrifices, through their burnt offerings with the wrong motives. They're just cranking it out on their own in some kind of religious externalism. We might say it like this in the New Covenant context. I'm going to church. I'm worshiping every Sunday. Isn't that enough? Isn't that what he expects? I mean, most of the time I really don't want to come, and I certainly don't want to shower and shave and... put on my clothes, or I don't want to put on that dress. I, 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 I don't really want to do it, but I, I got up and I went there, and I listened to the music. I may have even participated in a couple of stanzas, but is this what I'm supposed to do every single time, every single week, every single month and year and decade? And it wouldn't be that this God, the judge, says, I haven't seen you in church in a while. 
No. He says, in essence, it's not for your church going do I rebuke you. It's not for your standing there and raising your voices like the other worshipers. If you take it back to the Old Testament context, it might be something like this. Look, I know what you're doing. I see very well what's going on. Hear me. Listen to me. I'm God. I'm your God. It's not for the physical sacrifices do I rebuke you. It's not for these burnt offerings that you continually bring my way. Verse 9. I will not accept a bull from your house or goats from your folds. Why? Because I own all of it. Verse 10, for every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. I owe it all. It's all mine. I own it all. Verse 11, I know all the birds of the hills, and all that moves in the field is mine. Look, I know what you're doing. And, and you think you own the animals that are being brought before me. I own them all. I'm in charge. I created them. And you're bringing this religious externalism, thinking that you are doing some kind of magnanimous sacrificing by taking of your herds and presenting them to me with the wrong motives and thinking you're okay with me. Verse 12. And this may be a reference, my friends, to the idea that the pagan deities of the time, apart from or outside of Israel, were actually creating their pagan deities and then turning around and feeding them. And verse 12, God says, if I were hungry, I wouldn't tell you. For the world and its fullness are mine. Do I eat the flesh of bulls or drink the blood of goats implied like those other pagan deities? No. And then verse 14. This may be the touchstone verse of the entire psalm. Here's what I'm looking for. Offer to God a sacrifice of what? Thanksgiving. You see the little marginal note there? You look down at the bottom of your page in the ESV and it says, here's an alternate translation, make thanksgiving your sacrifice to God. Now they were commanded to take their animals to Yahweh, right? It was commanded. It's in the legislation. It's the law. But God never created those laws of bringing those animals into His presence for sacrifice simply because He needed to eat. Simply because He wanted them to go through the motions. Simply because or merely so that this God and His people would be working out some religious externalism where they're doing something with their hands, but their hearts really aren't in it. That was never the point. It's never the point. You can offer sacrifices unto God with your heart not being involved in it, and it's like it's no sacrifice at all. 
Or you can kill of your own livestock and offer them to God. And if your heart isn't in it, he says, even if I were hungry, I wouldn't take it because you're offering it on unacceptable terms. And what is that unacceptable term? You're not doing it with thanksgiving. That's the whole point. Make thanksgiving your sacrifice to God. And look at the latter part of verse 14. And perform your vows to the Most High. That is, with a thankful heart. Didn't we just sing about that? You're supposed to do it with a thankful heart. Oh, look, I know that sometimes when we're coming to worship, to worship the Lord Jesus Christ with the company of His saints, and we come, and it has been a challenge to get out of bed. And it has been a challenge to jump in the shower. And of course we are weary. And when we come, maybe we have to get a jump start or two. But when we do, our heart is recalibrated and we begin to hear the thanksgiving songs of the redeemed and we say, oh, what a hard heart I have. I need to give God not just my body standing next to a chair, but I need to, need to give God the heart of my worship. Not just the raising of my hands, but the bowing of my heart. This is, this is what he's talking about. Offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving. That's what it's always been about. That was the... That was the legislation from Moses and through Jesus and to eternity future, that's what it shall always be about. It's always about a heart of true thanksgiving. And when you do, my friends, verse 15 says, and call upon me in the day of trouble, and what's going to happen? I will deliver you, and you shall glorify me. I mean, I want the glory of God. I want God to be glorified. And most certainly, in the day of trouble, I want to be delivered. And by the way, you know it probably as well as I do. The word deliver, it's the same word for salvation. It's the same word for salvation. I'll save you. I'll deliver you. This is the way to glorify me when you offer continually to me a sacrifice of thanksgiving, a sacrifice of praise, performing your heart vows to the Most High. This is what the Mighty One comes to expect of us. And this is why the judge, by the way, is saying, you don't have your heart right before me. He can look right through the externals. And all of this religious externalism, you're just, you're just churning out, cranking up the external obedience. And he says, I can see right into your heart. I know exactly where you are. I know exactly what you're thinking. By the way, do you remember Jesus, though, in a bit of a different context, who says in Matthew chapter 15, verses 7, 8, and 9, we don't have time to look at it, This is what Jesus does. He says to the scribes and the Pharisees of his day, 
these words. Well did Isaiah prophesy of you when he said, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. So whether you're concocting the doctrines that you like better than the commandments of God as a religious leader, as the religious leaders did in Jesus' day, or as here in Psalm 50, where the covenant people of God are being indicted with this felony count number one, and it was because their hearts were not right in their worship requirements, and they didn't worship God with the right heart, even if they held in their hands the right kind of sacrifice. I mean, what's What's God's explicit declaration to us? It's right there in verses 14 and 15. Offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving and perform your vows to the Most High and call upon me in the day of trouble. I will save you. I will deliver you and you shall glorify me. That's the right religious observance being done with a right heart of thanksgiving. You want to see this in a New Testament context? Turn in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 13. Hebrews chapter 13. This is, this is a, a right heart of worship. This is what God expects from a new covenant worshipers. Someone might say, well, look, I mean, I, I see what's happening to the Jews, and I see how stiff-necked they were and how disobedient they were and how they were not seeing God as they otherwise should, this transcendent one, and they thought that somehow they could crank up their obedience and bring their sacrifices even if their hearts weren't right, and maybe he would just pass by them because there were millions of sacrifices happening in Jerusalem, and there was blood all over the place, and maybe I could get by But according to the New Testament, which I think has shades very much of the old Hebrews chapter 13, notice what it says, verse 12, so Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. I'd say that was the ultimate sacrifice, right? Verse 13, therefore let us, because of what Jesus did, his modeling, his example. He suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. Through him then, listen to this, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. What a statement. That's what a worshiper is all about, whether old or new. Let us offer him continually a sacrifice of praise to God that is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. And then here's another, verse 16. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. It's always been like that, my friends, always. It's always a matter of the heart, right? Not just the externals. You can't think you can crank something out in, in, in some religiously external way and you got your hands raised, you got your hand on the sacrifice as it's being slaughtered. 
I'm representing myself and my sins by my hand being on that animal, and the animal is sacrificed, and there you go, and then you go back to all the stuff you were doing before. It's not God's way. No wonder, Matthew chapter 5 in Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, no wonder Jesus was really, really getting after especially the religious elite of their day, but not just them, all of them, and frankly, all of us. Look at Matthew chapter 5. This is what it's always been about, not the religious externalism for which there's a felony count indictment upon all of us, myself included. Look at verse 21 of chapter 5. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. And here's someone, you can see it, you can hear it. They say, well, I've never murdered anyone. I've never killed anyone. You can't hold a charge like that over my head. I've never done it. And he says this, verse 22, But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, uh, you worthless person, will be liable to the hell of fire. Now that's, that's serious stuff, isn't it? And it's not murderers but it is the angry of heart. You see, it's, it's not the idea that someone could say from an external level, I never murdered a single person in my life. You can't hold that over me. God, you can't act as a judge over me because I've never killed anyone. And then God, the judge, with his searchlight eyes, says, but what about that absolute filled-up anger in your heart? I mean, he's just turning that religious externalism right on its head. And he goes on. Look at, look at verse 23. So, he gives an illustration. So, you angry person, if you are offering your gift at the altar, this is, this is, this is worship here, and there, remember that your brother has something against you. The idea is, don't be angry Don't have anger in your heart. Leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. You see, here's the idea. Religious externalism, if a person came and they had this anger and malice and envy and corruption in their hearts and they went to God and said, here's my offering at the altar. God knows because of the omniscience of his searchlight eyes, and you've got anger all in your heart. But I'm coming to bring my offering. And he says, stop. Go back. Make it right with your brother and get rid of your anger, and then come and bring your offering before me. This is the way it is. 2 Samuel 24, 24. You probably know it well. David says, I will not offer burnt offerings to the Lord my God that cost me nothing. That's 1 Chronicles 21, 24 as well. It essentially says the same thing. And in both of those passages, by the way, these sincere offers of worship, the offering that cost me everything instead of costing me nothing, 
those actually were so acceptable to God that in both of those places, in 2 Samuel 24 and 1 Chronicles 21, it averted a disaster for the people of Israel. God was merciful. He was merciful. And I think that's what he means here in Psalm 50. Look at verse 15. Call upon me in the day of trouble. I will deliver you. I will avert the disaster. But you have to put away your religious externalism. So that's indictment number one. Look at the third outline point. This is felony indictment number two. God brings to them the indictment, let's call it instead of religious externalism, spiritual hypocrisy. This is felony indictment number two, spiritual hypocrisy. Look at verse 16. But to the wicked, God says, what right have you to recite my statutes or take my covenant on your lips? For you hate discipline, and you cast my words behind you. If you see a thief, you are pleased with him, and you keep company with adulterers. You give your mouth free rein for evil, and your tongue frames deceit. You sit and speak against your brother. You slander your own mother's son. What's going on here? This is God pronouncing upon his covenant people the second indictment. You think you're bringing me some kind of spiritual worship? And yet there is massive hypocrisy in your heart? And also now, even in your actions? And you call yourselves the covenant people of God? Would you notice in verse 16, God doesn't call them at that point the covenant people of God. He calls them what? Wicked. To the wicked. God says. And do you realize that that would be a term that would be reserved, presumably not for any of the people of God? The house of Israel? Wicked? No, no. Those are the, those are the pagans over there. Those are the godless. Those are the wicked. Everybody outside the house of Israel, those are the ones who are the pagans. Are you telling me that you're calling Yahweh, God, are you calling your own covenant people, at least some of them, wicked? It's exactly what it says. Verse 16, but to the wicked, God says, what right have you to recite my statutes or take my covenant on your lips? It might even be that they come and they say something like this, well, I'm a part of the covenant. I'm a part of the covenant people of God. Ali, Ali, oxen free, you can't touch me. My hand's on the tree. I'm a part of the covenant. No damage here. No punishment coming to me. I'm a part of God's people. He says, what right do you have? What right do you have to recite any of my statutes? You mean to tell me with the spiritual hypocrisy in your heart, you're quoting Scripture? You're taking my covenant on your lips? And maybe they're going to say at that point, wait a minute, I mean, if this is the Supreme Court of the land, and if the judge is hearing all of these indictments, the judge being not only the supreme sovereign of the universe, but he's also, in this case, the prosecuting attorney, 
and they're saying, when have we done that? I don't remember doing that. Could you give me an example? And he says, I will. Verse 17, for you hate discipline. That means you hate instruction. Same word for instruction. You hate instruction. You, you hate obedience. And you're reciting my statutes when the fact of the matter is I can see right into your heart to the spiritual hypocrisy and the latter part of verse 17, and you cast my words behind you. You know what that means? You totally ignore and disregard my words. You just cast them behind you. You just throw them aside. You act as though they don't matter at all. Oh, God's words, come on. Now, it's never out front. It's never verbalized like that. You go into the house of God. You, you go into the church of Jesus Christ, and everybody looks good. Everybody looks wonderful. Everybody's wonderfully clothed, and they have smiles, and they're raising their hands, and they're worshiping. And he says, but you hate discipline, and you are throwing my words right to the side. You're disregarding them. Verse 18, if you see a thief, you are pleased with him. You you see somebody stealing from somebody else, and you're approving of the thievery. And you keep company with adulterers? What was the law given for adultery? Stoning. Death. And you keep company with them? And possibly this may even mean, and you yourself are such involved with adultery yourself? Verse 19, you give your mouth free reign for evil and your tongue frames deceit? You evil speak, and you deceitfully lie. Verse 20, you sit and speak against your brother, your own brother. You slander your own mother's son. That means there is a brother to you. He's genetically tied to you as a member of this covenant community, the house of Israel, and you slander him? You slander him to his own mother? I mean, this is, I mean, he gives six indictments here, six evidences. Here's, here's exhibit A, B, C, D, E, F. You, you hate discipline. You ignore God's words, his instructions. You approve of thievery. You accommodate adultery, if not even involve yourself in it. You speak evil things, and you have deceitful tongues, and you slander your fellow man and your brother in your community. Now, I want you to know what comes next. Look at verse 21. These things you have done, and I have been what? Silent. Do you see there what I see? I call it mercy. Mercy. He's been mercifully silent. Oh, what a long-suffering, patient God we serve. He sees all of this going on. And he sees it from his own covenant people. And he's patient until the right time. Until the right time of judgment, of course. But make no mistake about it, verse 21, one of the famous 
verses in all of the Bible, you thought that I was one like yourself. Or maybe the translation that I prefer, you thought that I was just like you. You thought it's going to go on like this. You're not going to do anything. Why? Because you're just as corrupt as I am. There's not going to be any impending judgment. Why? Because you're on the take just like I am. But you have misunderstood me, God says. I'm not like you. And his judgment is now upon them. Because verse 21 goes on to say, But now I rebuke you and lay the charge before you. The time for the verdict has come. The gavel is just about on the table. And just before it comes down, the Almighty Sovereign stops within less than an inch from pronouncing the judgment. And he has only one last thing to say. Let's call it in outline point number four. God promises salvation to all whose hearts are truly His. God promises salvation to all whose hearts are truly His. Look at verse 22. Mark this then, you who forget God. I mean, He's still talking to the same people. He's still talking to the lawbreakers. He's still talking to the spiritually hypocritical and the religiously external. He's still talking to them, and yet he says, this merciful, gracious God, mark this then, you who forget God, lest I tear you apart and there be none to save, none to deliver. There's that word again. The gavel is almost down on the table. The pronouncement has almost been given. And then he says once again, just like he did in verse 14, verse 23, the one who offers thanksgiving as his sacrifice glorifies me. And then the last sweet sentence, to one who orders his way rightly, I will show the salvation of God. I give you one last opportunity. If you would just see the wrongness of your ways, if you you would just see what you're doing and acknowledge to me what it is that you are doing and repent of it, I will show you the deliverance of God. Do you see it there? That's that word salvation. That's the word deliverance. I'll deliver you. I mean, there's maybe one paper-thin size of distance between the gavel and where it comes to rest. It's that close to eternal condemnation. And yet he says, if you would repent, acknowledge your sin, and by the way, undoubtedly, grouped together as it is in the providence of God, Psalm 51, the blessing of repentance and forgiveness. And so he says, if you would but repent and offer thanksgiving as your real sacrifice that glorifies me and to the one 
notice this, who orders his way rightly. What does that mean? The only way to order your life rightly is to acknowledge every single indictment, everything that he says about the religiously external and the spiritually hypocritical, and if you acknowledge those things and repent of them, and then here's the way you order your life rightly. You put your faith, your trust, your confidence in Yahweh and Yahweh alone, and through that repentance and faith, he says... I will show the salvation of God. I'll I'll deliver you. You're in trouble. Deep trouble. And I'm still there. And the judge, the supreme judge of all the earth, says before the gavel comes down, is there anyone who wants to repent and believe? And of course, for our context, if there's anyone who wants to repent and believe in Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord, if you order your life that way, the right way, Christ's way, His salvation, His death, His burial, His resurrection, then we will be shown the very salvation of God. God delivers people in Jesus Christ for Him and through His blood, by His sacrifice, via repentance and faith. This is what Psalm 50 could be if it were in a New Covenant context, right? This is, this is an evangelistic psalm. This is Jesus saying, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how I would have gathered you as a hen gathers her chicks but you would not. You say, well, how many of these Jews in the day of Psalm 50, let alone in Jesus' day, who were in Jerusalem and to whom he was referring at that point, how many of them repented? How many of them believed? We don't know. But here's what we do know. A few of them did, a remnant. And when they did, they experienced the very salvation of God. You know, I sometimes hear a lot of people saying, well, it seems to me that unless there's a universal salvation of God, it isn't worth it or it isn't fair or why God would do something like that and not save everybody. I'm just so glad. My heart is blessed beyond measure that with all the corruption and the depravity of mankind, that there's actually anybody. Don't tell me about the the problem of pain. I ask the question, why is there any pleasure? Why is there any pleasure at all? God has no obligation, none, to deliver anyone because we're all religiously externalized and spiritually hypocritical. And yet, there's time, though we don't know how much time, to repent. Mark this, then, you who forget God, the one who offers thanksgiving as his sacrifice, glorifies God. Order your way rightly like that, and he will show you his salvation. Let's pray together.
our Heavenly Father. This is a a hard word, but it is a true word. It's a true word because none of us deserve the salvation of God. All men, Romans 3 says, are guilty, guilty of going their own way. No one seeks after God, not even one. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We're all condemned. We all have religious externalism and spiritual hypocrisy. We're all deserving of divine judgment from the Supreme Court justice of the land. You're absolutely right in everything you've said tonight, our Lord. And yet, before the night is through, undoubtedly, there will be some around the world who will see their sin as it is for the first time. It might even be from someone right now, even as they are about to pillow their head and who might even be reading Psalm 50. And we ask, not just for them, but for us, let us settle it in our hearts forever that we must not forget you, but repent of such high-handed rebellion and that we must see our way ordered rightly by faith in Jesus Christ through His atoning blood sacrifice and by His resurrection from the dead. He is Lord. He is Lord of all the living and the dead. And He will come one day to be that judge And when he comes, will he find faith on the earth? Oh, I pray that myself and our friends here who gathered tonight would all know with certainty that we have received the salvation of God. May we trust in Jesus Christ and him alone for such a great salvation. We pray in His name. Amen. Amen. We again have about 20, 25 minutes to pray.